and the case is submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 917873, William Fax versus Michigan. Mr. Payne, you may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, five years ago today, um, there was a robbery in Jackson County of a Rack's restaurant that uh, gave rise to the, um, this case. I'd like to note that uh, my opponent pointed that out to me, but uh, it is a, an interesting coincidence. Um, on February 29, 1988, um, a complaint was issued by the Jackson County Sheriff's, or Jackson County Prosecutor, at, that um, showed that the residence of the defendant was the Fort Wayne, Indiana Jail. And that's at the joint appendix on page two. Um, I don't have any uh, specific references in the, in the uh, joint appendix between that date and September 7th of 1988. But on that day, um, my client, Mr. William Fex, signed a request for disposition under the Interstate Agreement on Detainers. Um, between that date and September 26th, 1988, there is again something of a, of a void. But that is the date on which uh, the prosecutor urges that they actually received the uh, request for distribution or request for disposition of the uh, detainer and that is the date that, that we will concede that they actually received the request for disposition the question here is does the um, signing of the request for disposition on September 7th or does the receipt of the request for disposition trigger the 180-day limitation on uh, prosecution under the interstate agreement on detainers. From uh, the time that my client was sentenced in Indiana until he was transferred to Michigan for prosecution in this present case, um, he was effectively uh, prevented from participating in any rehabilitation um, at the prison in Indiana. And that is the problem. That is the injury here. Had he been One, going through uh, such a program prior to the installation of uh, the request? No, there wasn't any opportunity because um, at the time that the um, complaint was issued, and I cannot believe that the Michigan Prosecutor's Office didn't have some kind of communication with the uh, Indiana Prosecutor's Office and the, and the court there. Um, this was before he was sentenced in Indiana. It was before he was convicted, as a matter of fact. Um, 
from the time that he was convicted, there was at least a hold, if not a technical detainer. Uh, they were on top was of him right away. They were on top of him right away. Yes, Your Honor. Um, and I would like to point out that uh, complaint is one of the documents that is listed in, under the interstate agreement on detainers. And so uh, from the day that he was sentenced, I believe that was in uh, on or about April 26th, um, he was under uh, the act and he should have been notified. But he was not notified until September 7th. I would like to uh, make three points here uh, during my argument. The first point is that um, the injury here is not merely to my client, it is an injury to the society as a whole because it prevents the rehabilitation of the prisoner. Um, I would also like to stress that the prisoner here is not in control. The prosecutor in the receiving state and the jailers are in control. They uh, are in very firm control and, and by manipulating the paperwork properly they can um, either ensure a prompt disposition or they can delay it. Uh, thirdly, I would like to... It, but it may be that the language of the uh, statute uh, makes it an argument that ought to be addressed to the Congress. I mean, it, it does say cause to be delivered, doesn't it? Justice Scalia, I don't think that the language of the... Um, statute is sufficiently clear. We have um, the statute which says that um, the prosecutor shall have 180 days after the prisoner shall have caused to be delivered um, this request. Mm -hmm. Now, you have three concepts. Um, one is that the prisoner makes a demand. Two is that the demand is transmitted through his jailers. And three, that there's 180 days. And I think that from a grammatical standpoint or from a logical standpoint, the, um, the requirement of the 180 days will follow the, uh, the other two requirements. So the natural way that you would say this is that the prisoner makes a demand, he gives it to the jailer, and then there's 180 days uh, that the prosecutor has to, to bring the action. Well, I think um, it's a little different than that, isn't it, uh, Mr. Payne? Supposing in the the 1st of October, after the prosecutor had received the document, someone said to the prisoner, on what date did you cause that document to be delivered to the prosecutor? What would your answer be? When did he cause it to be delivered? He would, uh, if he knew what he was after, he would say September 7th when he signed it. <laughs> to you first. Yeah. Well, just say, yeah. you, say you're mailing a letter paying a bill, and uh, after the bill's been paid, somebody asked, when did you cause that letter to be delivered? Would your answer be when it was received or when you mailed it? I would say when it was mailed. Of course. But I, I think that... What if you knew it never got there, and somebody asked you the same question? When did you cause it to be delivered? You would still say on March 7, even though it was never delivered? It was never delivered. Well, it, it's kind of a, an unusual phraseology. These are documents that have been delivered. That's undisputed, isn't it? Yes. And the only question is, when did he cause it to be delivered? He caused it on September 7th. And your your argument would be a lot easier if the statute said sent, wouldn't it? 
Yes, it would be, yeah. uh, Justice. It, isn't that a distinction we ought to bear in mind? Yes, and it still is not clear, though, because normally um, you wouldn't ask somebody, when did you cause your, um, your light bill to be paid? Um, you would say, when did you send it? Or, or when was it received? But you couldn't say, when did you send it here, because he doesn't send it, does he? He gives it to someone else to send it. That's correct. And um, I would like that to point out... It doesn't say after it was delivered, does it? It says after he caused it to be delivered. That's correct. And, and the emphasis should be on he, and it's, and it's on what he does. Don't, don't we still have the problem that he didn't cause it to be sent? The statute does not speak of his causing it to be sent. The statute speaks of his causing it to be delivered. That's correct, Your Honor. And, and yeah. that's, that's the distinction that I was trying to, to suggest. We'll resume there at 1 o'clock, Mr. Payne. Oh, thank you. Mr. Payne, you may proceed with your argument. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Before the lunch break, we were, um, I was asked a question about shall have caused to be delivered, and the only answer I have is that this is ultimately an ambiguous state or way of phrasing the, the requirement. Um, when somebody is asking whether or, or when a, a phone bill or a light bill was paid, the question is when did you send it, and the answer, of course, is um, on the day that it was put in the mail. The uh, Senate report to uh, uh, 91.13.56 um, has a somewhat different formulation uh, in explaining the uh, interstate agreement on detainers than the excerpt that on which the Solicitor General and the uh, uh, respondent reply. There, when you mail a check, uh, you may think you've paid it, but uh, have you? Well, probably we're, not. We're, we're in somewhat probably of an artificial um, situation here because we're dealing with For the example, if you didn't have, a, have sufficient funds, do you think you've paid your bill? No, um, that's all right. Well, Justice... If you are accepting a, an offer of a contract, the offer of a contract is accepted when it is put in the mail or when you have delivered the um, offer to the agent of the, uh, or when you've delivered your acceptance to the agent of the offerer. Or if and you want to comply with our time requirements, if you have a little, a little, uh, uh, verification that you put, put it in the mail on time, you are in time. That's correct, but um, the bottom line here, I think, is that the prison authority is the agent of the prosecutor. And um, Mr. Scrotenbor urges that um, the, pr the prison authorities have to have a certain amount of time in order to respond to the uh, request for distribution, disposition, um, I would like to suggest that they really don't. Um, as a matter of fact, in this case, 
the certificate of inmate status was executed on the same day that the inmate executed his request for disposition. And even if they needed a day or two, um, they could process that paperwork before they gave the request for disposition to the prisoner so that it would be all ready to go when he signed it. Now, the Solicitor General suggests that the, uh, the prisoner is in control. Um, I handle habeas corpus, habeas corpus case. I handle um, Section 1983 cases. I handle a lot of uh, criminal appeals. And I visit prisoners on a regular basis. And I submit to the court that prisoners do not have control over their jailers. They can manipulate the system with petitions and I'm glad to hear threats. That. I'm glad to hear that. I, I, yes. We, we worry about that sometimes. But, well, they can, they can manipulate, they can disrupt, um, they can um, cause effects outside of the prison, and, and certainly they can disrupt the, the uh, internal affairs of the prison, but they don't have control over their jailers to the extent that they um, would be able to um, ensure that the, um, the prison sends the request for distribution to the prosecutor. And that's the, the kernel of the Supreme Court of Tennessee's handling of this, um, this issue. They said Mr. that... Mr. Payne, uh, are you familiar with a case up here not too long ago called Houston against Locke? No, I am not, Chief. It's not uh, cited in your brief. I commend it to you for what it's worth. I will. I thank you for that. Um, Rumor against. It helps you, by the way. It doesn't hurt you. Okay. <laughs> thank you. In any case, the the prison, the the Moore case, which is um, probably the the primary case on which the respondent relies, uh, from the uh, Supreme Court of Tennessee would hold that, number one, the prisoner um, is responsible for ensuring that the jailer sends the request for disposition. And if the, if the prison does not do so, then that's uh, chalked up against the, the prisoner. It is not uh, any delay by the prison is not uh, considered against the, the prosecutor's 180 days. Secondly, I know, but it isn't like... Uh Increasing his uh, sentence or anything, it's just uh, it's, it just means that the prosecutor is going to have a few more days extra to try him. Well, in some cases, it's a uh, in some cases it's a few more days. In uh, more, it was 225 days. Mm -hmm. But the the problem here is that all of the time that the prisoner is under detainer, he's unable to uh, get favorable work assignments. He's unable to. Um, get rehabilitative services. He's, uh, in general, in, in, in this case, my client was in segregation that period of time. He, he's unable to, to be rehabilitated, and that's the, um, the, the intent of the legislature is to uh, address that problem. Mm -hmm. Mr. So, excuse me. So, so you think the uh, prosecutor in the, in the other state should take the risk of... Uh, of uh, delay by the prison authorities well, and Justice, by the mail. Justice White, I don't think... Uh, well, the answer is yes, isn't it? 
Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. That's all I need to know. Yes. And may I amplify that? When the prosecutor sends the uh, request for distribution, or the, when the prosecutor sends the detainer to the prison authorities, the prosecutor certainly should know that they have done it. And if they keep any kind of a log, and if the, the paperwork is properly um, set up uh, so that, for example, you have a one-write system in accounting or, or in docket management, if the prosecutor sets up its paperwork trail and keeps a log, um, I can't see that the, that the prosecutor would lose any more than possibly a few days when they, they uh, have to contact the prison to find out whether the prisoner signed it or not. Now, they, uh, if they keep track of these things, I, can't, I cannot see that the prosecutor could be severely um, hampered in adhering to the 180-day rule. And if there is a, a reason for the delay, then they can go to court and ask for a continuance. The statute provides for that. And what's the consequence of their, of their failure to, uh, I mean, let's assume they don't do it. What, what is the consequence? The qu consequence is that they lose jurisdiction to try the, the uh, prisoner. He doesn't get punished for that offense at all, right? And what's the consequence of putting the burden the other way? The consequence of burden... That the, the prisoner may not be rehabilitated for up to a couple of hundred days. Yes. Um, no, and in many cases... Putting uh, those two risks next to each other, it, it's clear to me which one's greater. Yes. Uh, but, Justice Scalia, you have to consider whether... Um, who has the control? Who's in charge here? The prosecutor has control of this, over the situation. And the prosecutor can control whether or not the, the uh, paperwork gets processed, whether the prisoner is ridded from the one state to the other, and, and whether the trial takes place within 180 days. You're talking about the, the Jackson County prosecutor in Michigan. Though. Yes. Uh, how, how does he have control over what, what goes on in the Indiana prison? He knows that um, the detainer has been sent to, uh, to the Indiana prison. And if he is keeping a log, uh, he knows when to expect the, the return of the request for disposition. Well, uh, but that depends on the action of the individual inmate, doesn't it? Well, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I think that if the inmate is going to sign the request for disposition, he probably will do it immediately. And the prosecutor could operate on the assumption that, that it's going to come back and at least start the, the uh, initial paperwork. The alternative is that you say to the uh, uh, prison officials, well, if you don't send it back, that's okay because uh, the prosecutor's not prejudiced by your failure to return the, the request for disposition. Um, there's just no control whatsoever. And, and in the Moore case, the Supreme Court of Tennessee went so far as to say that if there is an intervening um, detainer that is uh, processed, and if the prisoner goes to another state and then comes back, the original detainer is um, is extinguished. It just uh, goes away. Don't you think a lot of people who are charged with crime uh, would rather delay the trial? Uh, a lot of people would. I think if if they're in prison, though, um, the motivation is all the other way. The motivation well, is there. Is, uh, is there a is there some uh, 
experience that that you've had or that other people have had that indicate that uh, when a detainer is filed, uh, the uh, the uh, prisoner immediately requests for a trial? Well, certainly um, in this case and in well, a I large majority of the cases that I have read, um, they indicate that uh, when the, the detainer is given to the prisoner, he signs it immediately. That, that appears to be the case. Now, that was not the case in Moore. Uh, if I remember correctly, Debbie Moore um, at first um, refused ex extradition, and then uh, someone in the prison, you know, a prison paralegal clued her in and said, you know, you should uh, uh, sign the request for uh, disposition and, and file it, and, and so she did. But, um, Mr. Payne, earlier I think you started to comment on the government's use of legislative history in this case, where they refer to a comment that the 180 days is its kind of ambiguous, but were you going to, and you never finished what you were going to say about that. Um, yes, Justice Stevens. Um, the Attorney General, um, as part of the legislative history in, um, in Senate Report 91-1356, um, says Article 3 of the agreement provides that the inmate may make a request for the disposition of all pending charges upon which detainers are based by applying to the official in whose custody he is placed, and that application will be forwarded to authorities of the jurisdiction in which the charges are pending. The prisoner must be brought to trial within 180 days thereafter. And um, the excerpt on which the um, Solicitor General uh, relies seems to indicate that the 180 days starts after the um, request for disposition is received by the prosecutor. Um, I believe that a reasonable interpretation of that language would indicate that or, or uh, treats the signing of the request for disposition and the uh, transmittal by the prison authorities as one event which triggers the 180-day time limit. So that um, when you say uh, the charges on which detainers are based, uh, he may request the disposition by applying to the official in whose custody he is placed, I think there's a slightly different em emphasis there than um, on the excerpt on which the Solicitor General relies. If, if a state were routinely remiss uh, in processing these requests uh, quickly, um, say for budgeting reasons, they say, well, these IIDs are taking too, many, too much time. Um, is there any remedy that the receiving state can institute? one state is particularly slow, particularly remiss. Well, Justice Kennedy, in my experience, or in, uh, according to uh, my understanding, there is no uh, penalty on the sending state for not following through. The only real control that we have here is um, the receiving state's um, in determination to bring the prisoner to trial. And I think that you have to consider that the uh, prison authorities and the prosecuting authorities are going to work very well together, whereas um, the prisoner... In my, in my hypothetical, they didn't, and there's nothing you can do?
Um, as far as I know, there, there's no remedy for that. Um, Could the prisoner bring a, an action to compel the uh, prison authorities to forward his request? The statute doesn't. Uh, my answer to that would be no, um, Justice O'Connor, because um, it would be more time-consuming than uh, would be it would have any practical effect, and also because the statute doesn't um, so it doesn't provide for it. Um, I can imagine a Section 1983 action um, or a, a request for a writ of habeas corpus, but um, those things just take too long, and, and I can't imagine the state um, just sitting on it for you know nine months to a year. Does the statute provide that the prisoners get any kind of notice as to whether or not it was delivered? The statute does not provide for that. Um, well, how would he know whether he had a suit or not? Well, that's a... He wouldn't. That's just, he just assumes he, he it'll carry through, yeah. Um, if there are no further questions, I would uh, reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Payne. Uh, Mr. Schrodenberg? Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, I'm asking that the court affirm this particular case. Both the Michigan Supreme Court and the vast majority of jurisdictions have correctly ruled that Article III, the Interstate Agreement on Detainers 180-day provision begins with the actual receipt by the prosecutor. And I'm asking you to rule the same, essentially for three reasons. First, the language of the statute itself. After all, this is a statutory interpretation case. Secondly, the congressional history. And third, the actual policy considerations, which actually favor respondents' position, which favor the position of the vast majority of jurisdictions. The first is the statute's language itself. This phrase is the statute is not ambiguous. The phrase that we're talking about here is, shall have caused to be delivered. No, he left out the key word. He shall have caused to be delivered. And who is the he to whom the statute? The inmate, of course. The inmate when the shall he... have caused right. to be delivered. And what is the last time he did anything to cause it to be delivered? When he handed it to the warden. That Isn't is that the date he shall have caused it to be delivered? No. Why doesn't the statute say after delivery, if that's what it means? You can always... See, these words are superfluous under your reading of the statute. You no. say it doesn't mean after he shall have caused to be delivered. It says after it was delivered is what you're saying it means. That's right. It's written up in such a way as not to add in an extra sentence. But it he has shall... unnecessary words that, that are not, not needed at all. No. Don't we generally construe statutes to avoid... Assuming that certain words are, are totally unnecessary? Of course, but I don't quite understand what's unnecessary under this interpretation. Yes. Words have caused to be. Yes. Caused to be delivered. And that's the key point here, and that shows that it's 180 days from actual receipt. Doesn't say that. Yes, it does. <laughs> For two reasons, Your Honor. First, it's in the future perfect tense. If it was the time that he actually received it, 
I mean that he handed it to him, it wouldn't be future perfect. Future perfect means complete and in the future, after he shall have caused to be delivered. And the second reason is the use of the word delivery itself. Your Honor, yourself used the word delivered that way. Well, when you asked the question this morning, is there any doubt that the documents have been delivered? No, 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 that wasn't the question. The question is, after delivery, and you asked the person who's mailed the thing to you, and you said to him, when did you cause it to be delivered? And you're telling me you would answer that by saying, oh, when you got it. That's right. <laughs> and you think that's perfectly plain? That is sufficiently plain, given everything in this particular case. The word delivered, you know, just yesterday on the television, I heard an advertisement for Federal Express. We confirm delivery. That would be totally meaningless if we confirm having sent it on. You know, UPS, the best delivery service in the business. It means if they're going to come in and say, well, we sent it on and that's all that we care about, we don't really care that much about actual receipt, they're not going to get too much. The phrase is not that ambiguous. Yes, it was written by a lawyer and that's sometimes a problem and that's why we're here. But those, it is sufficiently clear to show that that is what was intended, which is exactly what the vast majority of jurisdictions have ruled. And the second reason, of course, in going for Justice Stevens is a, well, by his uh, calculation, uh, when it isn't delivered, it's the prisoner who has caused it to be non-delivered. He has uh, given it to the prison authorities, uh, and he's and anticipating to be sent in the mail, and either the prison authorities or the mail fail. That's correct. And so uh, he caused it to be non-delivered. No, no, that's that's not. No, well, that, nobody that caused be it to be delivered. It never never got there. So after it's gotten it's there, supposed to be non-delivered. He caused it to be non-delivered. <laughs> no, the let's not forget the phrase here is shall start. You know, let's go back a little bit further. What you're ahead. saying is he can't cause it to be. He cannot possibly cause it to be delivered until it gets there. That he is cannot true. possibly cause it to be delivered well, at a time prior to when you know it has been delivered. That's right. It, obviously, that it has to be delivered before there can be a cause of the delivery. But once it's been delivered, you ask, when did he cause it to be delivered? And you when say, he, he caused it to be delivered 20 days he, after he had anything to do with it. The phrase is, he shall be brought to trial within 180 days after he shall have caused to be delivered. And that is the future perfect. The word perfect means complete. And therefore, it starts with actual receipt. No, it's complete. But it, the question is always asked at a period after the delivery has been completed. That's, that's the hypothesis in all these cases. And you're just measuring the date at which he caused it to be delivered. It's yeah. always been delivered. So your future, you're, you always look at it after the transaction has been completed. Is that is a problem? correct. What? And the way to interpret it, the way to look at it is starts the day that the prosecutor receives. And that's, that's what it says. It doesn't say it in that, those words, but that is what it says. When the prosecutor gets this, this material, let me ask this question, does, 
Will he have any way of knowing when it was handed to the warden? Absolutely I mean, not, Your Honor. I mean, I can understand a prosecutor gets it. He says that he put, you know, his office hits a receipt stamp on it. He knows he has to count 180 days from then, right? Otherwise, he would have to try to figure out when it was that the inmate gave it to the warden in the other state. That is absolutely correct, Your Honor. That's the third point in here. The and inmates might be inclined to lie about something like that? Uh, yes. They're, they're, they've been known to lie. Yeah. Considering Jackson County has the largest, largest walled prison in the world, yes, I can say they've been known to lie. Have, do they, have they learned about the invention of the time stamp in Jackson County? So you couldn't time stamp it in the county where the uh, prisoner gives it to the warden? We no have way of learned, keeping a record of that date. We have learned the time stamp in Jackson County. But, you but don't for think some strange reason, Mike. Mr. Fex did not bother walking over to our office on September 7 to have a time stamp. Well, you're in Michigan, aren't you? He was in jail in Fort Wayne, so I imagine he couldn't go into your... But couldn't That's the, right! But That's couldn't right. the Fort Wayne authorities, it, wouldn't they as a routine? How do they know that this one was actually on September 7th? Do they rely on his testimony? Or do they have some kind of record-keeping that enables them to fix it? That is date? probably some type of record-keeping in this particular case. But that's the point. The inmate is in a better position to monitor it, although that does not seem correct on its face. It actually is correct. Well, the prosecutor... At, at best, your prosecution would be subject to the record-keeping practices, which may be quite slovenly, of somebody in another state, being, correct? And that yes. is not what you want to risk. Yes, being rather intimately connected with the Michigan Department of Corrections, I'd certainly hate to be uh, uh, subjected to that. They have the Reception and Guidance Center in Jackson, too. Ninety-nine percent of your, of, of your uh, returns from the prison where you, to, 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 to which you have sent a detainer they're, they do have a time stamp on it as to when the, uh, as to when the prisoner uh, gave the uh, uh, demand to the, uh, uh, to, to the authorities to deliver. You would have no problem then about when the 180 days starts, would you? As long as the prison bothers sending that little piece of information on, I haven't always received that thing. Mm -hmm. I handle the extraditions in Jackson, too. Well, uh, it doesn't always happen. It doesn't always happen because the mail fails. It doesn't always happen because the prison officials don't always bother sending that piece of information on. And so that risk should be taken by the prisoner rather than negotiating with the other state. You don't speak that to one another. That is correct. Yes. And the reason for that is the prisoner is in the vastly better position. Yes, the Jackson prosecutor's office knew that he was in the county jail. But the interstate agreement on detainers had not yet kicked in then because he hadn't been under a judgment of sentence, which is the very first phrase of subsection A, Article 3. We did not know he was under a term of imprisonment until months later. The prosecutor's office doesn't always send out detainers. Very often, it's police agencies that send them. Very often, a detainer is filed with the jail, which is, of course, before the IAD uh, kicks in, and then it is forwarded on, along with the judgment of sentence, to the prison system, 
and they don't bother letting the prosecutor know about it. Do, um, you, do you have an obligation, as you understand the act, to send a second detainer once the judgment becomes in, in effect? <clears throat> I don't see it as an obligation. I think it might be wise to do something like that. You think you fulfill your, uh, your statutory responsibilities by sending it to the jail before the uh, IAD even comes into effect? I don't see how there's any statutory duties. There is no statutory duty for the prosecutor to file any detainer at well, all. I, I take it there's a duty to do something in order to trigger the 180-day period. That is entirely on the inmate to trigger it. The, as this court stated in United States against mm -hmm. Mauro, the triggering part of the act is the filing of the detainer itself. If the prosecutor doesn't feel like filing the detainer, the act doesn't apply. If there's no detainer, there's no problem. So there's no duty by the prosecutor. It would be wise for the prosecutor to do it if he feels like getting the guy back to try him, particularly now as opposed to later. Well, and that's you, the way you, these cases come up, isn't it? The prosecutor does file a detainer because or does. he wants, wants to bring the defendant back for trial. But, but yes. is, is it proper procedure under the act to file the detainer with the jail before the uh, prison commitment begin? It is proper procedure, but it's certainly not mandated. You, what it, the detainer in the jail is, of course, nothing but a hold on him. Uh, please don't let him go. We have a felony or something or other against him. Please don't let him go before you send him to us. And, of course, the interstate agreement on detainers does not apply to that situation. That is exceptionally It comes clear. into effect only when, what, there's a judgment of commitment or... It goes into effect when a detainer is filed after he has, is under a judgment of sentence. That is correct. So then it would seem to me under the reading of the act that you, at least to be careful, you ought to file a second detainer after the judgment <coughs> so that this act can, uh, uh, it, 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 so that at least so that the prisoner can know. It makes a that lot a of formal sense. detainer has been, been well let's put it this way you file a second detainer to make sure that the prison system knows so that they don't let him go if they tell me that there's somebody in a another prison I'll file the detainer right away I'm not going to think well maybe an earlier detainer is following it along this thing and that thing no I'm going to type out myself a letter and I'm going to send it out but it's the inmate who is in a better position to monitor it than the prosecutor. The prosecutor very often doesn't know it. The inmate, yes, 42 U.S.C. section 1983, this court's case, Adams against Kyler. If the warden doesn't send it on, that's a subsection B violation, he can sue for that. Also... But how does the prisoner know he hasn't sent it on? Well, subsection C requires, well... He'll know when nothing happens after the hundred eight after say hundred eighty days has gone by. He'll know. He'll know. Well, that certainly is. He has to wait the full statutory period before he has any. Uh, to a certain extent, that's know. right. And then he can sue. And also, Sixth Amendment right to speedy trial, which overrides. The interstate agreement on detainers. You don't need a, a, an agreement on detainer statute or agreements if you're going to rely on that. 
No, I'm saying that that supplements it. Of course we need the interstate agreement on detainers because the whole purpose of the act is to facilitate trial. It's not so easy walking over to a prison in another state and say, I'd like to pick up this inmate and come over across the line. You know, it's, it's as easy walking into Canada and asking for that. You have to go through the extradition procedures, and this is, in a sense, an extradition act. Yes, but the states have a mutual interest in working together and in, in, in implementing the statute, don't they? That's if you don't right. cooperate with Indiana, Indiana won't cooperate with you. I would assume that the two of you have a common interest in promptly uh, processing these requests and keeping proper records and all the rest. That is basically correct, them. even though two states have not signed the IAD. Well, but here we have states that have signed it. Both of them you have, have signed it. Do you have any comment on the Houston against Lack case? Are you familiar with it? Yes, I am. Houston against Lack absolutely does not control in this case. It is superficially similar, but it does not control. It was a 5-4 case. I know that, Your Honor, and uh, Your Honor Justice Blackwood, we're uh, in the majority. What difference does it make if it's 5-4 to four or 6-3? Nothing. Okay. Houston against... Have any of us who were in dissent? <laughs> yeah, I'm right. kind of trying but to I'm remind people. But I'm not sure people. I was. <laughs> uh, you were in the majority. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to remind the people who were in the dissent. The case dealt with a habeas petitioner who had lost in the district court. He then appealed. It's the 30-day uh, federal rule 4A1 of the Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure. He appealed. The 30-day procedure is jurisdictional. What he loses by not making it on time is his appeal. The reason, and this court said, for purposes of this statute, we're going to start it the day he hands it over to the warden. The reason it's different is because this is a fairness case. Actually, I agree with it, but that, that's beside the point. It's a fairness case. It's unfair for the inmate. Inmates are in a little tougher situation than normal people are because they can't just walk over to a courthouse and hand it over to them. That is... And that's why this court, in cases like uh, Haynes against Kerner and things like that, have given inmates special uh, deference. But there's something extra in the present case. The inmate in the present case, it's not he loses the appeal, but he just, the prosecutor gets a few extra days, a few extra hundred days. And also, Houston against Lack is a two-party case. The only parties are the inmates. Well, he, he the prosecutor doesn't get any extra days. He just gets the days he's entitled to. Actually, that's right, Your Honor. But a few extra days as opposed to the other interpretation. Houston against Lack was a two-party case. The only parties are the court system and the inmate. In the present case, we're talking a three-party. There's the prosecutor, too. There's no unfairness to the prosecutor in Houston against Lack. In the present case, there's a lot of unfairness to the prosecutor. I guess the only other point, going back to the language itself, this court itself, encouragement against Nash, actually said it starts from actual receipt. Not quite the words it used. You, of course, can read it. Yes, it is dicta, but that's my point. It's the actual 
language. It's the common usage of the language. And of course, there's the congressional history, and I guess uh, which is spelled out both in my brief. The Senate report makes it very obvious. The Solicitor General's brief going into the California and Oregon statutes really make it obvious that this is what the drafters intended. And the very last point is we do have an extra issue here, subsection C. First, the California statute's interesting because that's perfectly clear. It says shall have delivered. The reason that it is different is because that requires the inmate to send it on to the prosecutor. The IAD is better because it requires the warden to send it on so that when the prosecutor gets it, it will be more reliable and more thorough. The prosecutor really should have information like minimum outdate, maximum outdate, and the warden is more likely to provide reliable information on that point. Thus, the change in language, but there's absolutely nothing anywhere that shows that the drafters intended to change the date of actual receipt as the day for the 180 days to start. Nothing Last, except the language of the statute. <laughs> well, whatever. The only other question in the case is a claim subsection C violation. I'm going to have to rely on my brief in that case to the extent that, except to say, there is no evidence presented whatsoever that subsection C was violated and petitioner has not even requested an evidentiary hearing on that. And secondly, there is no actual prejudice whatsoever even alleged. Other than to ask the court to affirm, this ends my presentation, and I ask if anyone has any questions. Thank you, Mr. Scotenberg. Mr. Seaman, we'll hear from you. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to begin uh, by addressing a question that Justice Stevens uh, posed to my colleague, which is whether under our interpretation of Article 3A of the IAD, uh, the provision doesn't contain unnecessary language. <clears throat> Pardon me, and my answer to that is no. Now, Justice Stevens asked why Article 3A is not drafted so as to simply trigger the 180 days after delivery. Of the, of the prisoner's request. My, my, I would suggest that the answer to that comes from the drafting history, which we discuss in our brief beginning at page 21. The drafters note, <coughs> pardon me, the Council of State Governments, which proposed the IAD in 1957, actually proposed uh, two state, uh, two agreement uh, proposals at the same time, one based on interstate detainers and one governing intrastate detainers. The speedy trial provisions in both proposals were virtually identical, and the Council noted that the intrastate proposal was based on statutes then in effect in California and Oregon. Both the California and Oregon statutes plainly required actual receipt for triggering of the speedy trial provision. We suggest that the drafters did not intend to change the actual receipt requirement. The, relative, the, the relevant differences between the state models on which the IAD was based and the IAD itself is the wording requiring the, the prisoner to have caused delivery of the required documents. There are two reasons for that wording, requiring the prisoner to cause delivery. First is the whole topic of Article 3 is that the prisoner has initiated the process of disposing of the charges underlying the detainer. 
fact that the prisoner has initiated the process is what distinguishes Article 3 from Article 4, which deals with when the state initiates the process of disposing of the charges. How, how does he initiate the process? By he, causing something to be delivered? That's correct. He, oh. he causes... He, that's what you focus on, is his act in initiating the process, is the key act in the whole statutory scheme. No, under Article 3, there are, are two acts that must occur before the 180... You have to, have to file a detainer with the prisoner, sure. Well, and specifically under Article 3, he has to cause the transmittal of his documents, and the documents actually have to be delivered. And there's no dispute here that delivery means actual receipt. Article 3A differs from the state proposals on which... If you talk about the drafting history, I'm surprised they didn't follow the Oregon statute. which was an equally clear model for this under your view, I think. The Oregon statute revolved, was built around the verb receive. Right. And we would suggest that the problem with using the verb receive rather than the verb deliver in Article 3 is that then you would shift the, the focus of Article 3 to the prosecutor and the appropriate courts receiving it. That would shift the focus away from the prisoner. And the prisoner has a vital role under Article 3 as opposed to Article 4 because but he initiates the process. But that's precisely the shift in focus which you say the drafters intended should focus on receipt. But Article 3 as, as but the whole scheme rather focused on the prisoner which would seem to focus on when he caused it to be delivered. I'm sorry, I may have misspoken. The, the scheme of Article 3 focuses on the prisoners having initiated the process. And so using the prisoner as the subject of the relevant clause we're talking about makes sense in, in understanding why Article 3 is different from Article 4 of the IED uh, because Article 4 is directed at the state. And, of course, the other reason for using the word cause uh, in the relevant wording is that the prisoner does not make an actual delivery directly to the court and the prosecutor in the receiving state. Instead, under Article 3C, his, he is required to give his request for disposition to the wardens, who are then required to promptly forward it to the receiving state. That's why the, the causing language is in there. And it, but the gist of Article 3 is to require a communication between the prisoner and the prosecutor in the receiving state. And it is only when that communication, namely the prisoner's request for disposition, has been completed that the prosecutor's duty to bring the prisoner to trial in a speedy manner um, begins. And that he, he cannot know of his duty to do so until he has actually received the request for disposition. The other point about the relevant language of Article 3 uh, I'd like to repeat is one that Justice Souter raised, which is that the drafters could easily have drafted Article 3A to trigger the 180-day period to begin when the prisoner sent or gave his request for disposition to the warden officials. In fact, the language of giving or sending is included in Article 3B. Therefore, it would have been natural had the drafters intended to adopt petitioner's rule for them to have used similar language in Article 3A. The use of different language suggested that they had a different intention. Mr. Seaman, is there, is there anything in the IAD that requires a prosecutor to move promptly in order to get a, a prisoner back for trial? I'm not quite sure I understand your question. Certainly once he receives the, the prisoner's request, he then has... Well, no, so supposing he, he just says, I'm not sure whether I want this guy to come back for a trial, so I'm not, I'm not going to put a detainer on it. I might do it next year. Ultimately, there are Sixth Amendment limitations. Yes, but I said in the IAD. No, there are none. 
I would note that under the, um, under the Speedy Trial Act in the federal system, my answer would be different because the Speedy Trial Act does give a federal prosecutor a, a duty to file the detainer if he knows that a, a prisoner who has been charged with a crime is, is in a state. But the IED itself does not. And, and, and we recognize at the same time that states have an interest in processing these requests speedily. Um, and in fact, that the, the prison officials have a duty, and, and we suggest in most cases they live up to that duty, of sending on the prisoner's paperwork promptly. Um, nonetheless, the IED itself does not contain a sanction for addressing the situation in which a state does not forward those documents promptly. Um, that doesn't mean there are no remedies. Uh, both at the political level, the state, a state that has been, uh, has been negligent in its fulfilling its duty may well be subject to political pressure from other states that are parties to the IED. And at an individual level, level uh, the prisoner himself certainly has remedies by way of mandamus or uh, the internal grievance procedure that is present in, in all uh, prison systems, including the federal system. If there are no further questions. Yeah, I'd just be curious what you'd have to say about Houston against Lack. Uh, I agree with my colleague's explanation of Houston versus Lack. Houston versus Lack concerned a very the different... Plain the language in that the rule is any less plain than this? The, the court construed the language of Rule 4A um, to avoid an interpretation that would have effectively disastrous consequences for the prisoner in that case. He would have lost his right to appeal on the merits of, of his conviction. And here, the consequences are much different. They, they are, are noteworthy, of course. The prisoner suffers a delay in coming to trial. But nonetheless, they are much less drastic. In fact, the consequences that are drastic here are visited upon the prosecutor who suffers dismissal of the charges against the, the prisoner, perhaps simply through the fortuity of the prisoner's request being lost through the mail. Well, the right. respondent strove mightily to distinguish Houston against Mark, and uh, uh, none of you cited. All three of you let it rest in limbo. We, we did not cite Houston versus Lack in our brief uh, because we don't think it's opposite. We, we did cite uh, a juris, uh, jurisprudentially related case of Fallon versus United States in page 12. That concludes my presentation. I thank the court. Thank you, Mr. Seaman. Uh, Mr. Payne, you have six minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I have to differ with the respondent. Um, the prisoner does not initiate the process here. The prosecutor initiates the process. And if the prosecutor wants to take control of the process, he can do so right down the line. Uh, do you disagree that the detainer could have been filed uh, before the uh, sentencing? It could have been filed by someone other than the prosecutor before the sentencing. Is, is that true or not? Well, the, the detainer may, may have been filed. In this case, the, uh, the complaint was filed before the um, uh, was before the prisoner was convicted and sentenced. However... Sure, but, but, but you say the, the prosecutor isn't in control if, if it isn't up to him whether this whole uh, statute shall be called into play uh, by the filing of a detainer, which is the first step that triggers it or that lets the prisoner uh, trigger it. Well, the complaint, uh, Justice Scalia, comes from the same place um, as the detainer would. It comes from the Jackson, in this case, from the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office, um, it just happened to be that there was a complaint um, that was issued before the um, prisoner was, was sentenced in Indiana, 
and then um, there was a detainer issued, which was served on the defend on the on the prisoner on September 7, 1988. He'd already been serving a sentence for some time. What that this complaint case, can be filed before he knows that before the prosecutor knows that the person is even even uh, arrested anywhere else, right? I mean, can't that be so? No, uh, Justice Scalia, because. Um, at least not in the... All, it, all the statute says is whenever during the continuance of the term of imprisonment there is pending in any other party state any untried indictment information or complaint. That could have been filed long before the imprisonment, right? It, it just has to be still pending. Um, yes, I would have to agree with you on that. Okay, and so... Uh, still, it comes from the prosecutor's office. and. Well, yeah, but he doesn't know, he doesn't know that he's standard. triggering, that he's beginning any uh, anything under this detainer statute. It seems to me the only state action that you can say consciously invokes the detainer statute is the is the filing of of, of a detainer, and and that uh, are, is your is your colleague incorrect that, that that could be could have been filed by a by a police department instead of by a prosecutor. Um, at least in Michigan, the complaint would have to be signed by the prosecutor. I'm talking about the. I'm talking about the detainer. The detainer could be put on by a police department. My understanding of the detainer. Now, the the court ruled um, has ruled that um, a probation violation is not a detainer. And uh, if I am not, if it's my understanding. Now, I'm, I don't work for the prosecutor's office, and and I'm not. Um, completely up on how this paperwork uh, is processed. But it's my understanding that if we just have a warrant, that a warrant would not constitute a detainer. It's only after the prosecutor's office issues a complaint or an indictment or a detainer that we actually have a, a document that is recognized under the IAD. And uh, I would like to suggest that um, as uh, Justice White has has uh, suggested that when the prisoner has delivered the paperwork to the prison authorities, he has caused uh, the request for detainer to be delivered. And I ask the court to rule in the only way that does not eviscerate the interstate agreement on detainers. Um, if you rule in favor of the petitioner, you have a bright line test. Um, the problem of competing requests for detainer can be dealt with uh, in the way that the paperwork is handled and the, and the uh, statute provides for a uh, continuance when the prisoner is unavailable. Um, it does not affect uh, the a prisoner sent request for detainer, which um, was the problem in a number of cases because when you have a prisoner sending it himself, there are uh, problems in uh, proving when it was sent and, and proving when it was received. But it's no more difficult for the prosecutor to prove when the prisoner tended the request for disposition to the prison than it would be for the prisoner to prove that when the prosecutor received it. And I, I want to stress um, that we are talking about the, the prisoner tendering the request for disposition to the agent of the prosecutor uh, who, in, who is initiating the, the detainer or the complaint or the indictment. And um, the prosecutor, if he wants to do so, can uh, exert 
perfect control over uh, when the, pro the paperwork is processed, how it is processed, and what kinds of records are uh, kept in order to ensure that it's not lost along the way. Uh, a very simple log uh, will ensure that we don't have the kinds of problem that we, we have here. And can I ask you another question about the text here? If you look at, if you look at subsection A, uh, I, I, I think one must acknowledge that there is some, uh, some room for ambiguity in the shall have cause to be delivered as to whether you look to the, to the place of causing, to the time of causing or the time of delivery. But if you skip down to the end of that same section, the last sentence says, the request of the prisoner shall be accompanied by a certificate of the appropriate official. Now that, that last sentence is obviously taking a, a, a viewpoint at the, at the time of delivery. Certainly at the time he makes the request, at the time he gives his uh, request to the warden, it is not accompanied by this document. It seems to me the whole paragraph is looking at it from the, from the prosecutor's receipt point of view. May I respond to that, Mr. Chief Justice? In this case, which is the only case I've had direct experience with, um, the certificate of inmate status was signed by Superintendent Broglin of Westville Correctional Center uh, the same day that my client signed the uh, request for dis in, uh, in Indiana. Yes, in Indiana. And I, I can't see that that would be a problem. Thank you, Mr. Payne. The case is submitted. Thank you. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.